Episode 106 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Jack Lessig. Welcome along to episode 106 of the Bevan James I'll Show, your fortnightly podcast and the behaviours that create a lifetime love of exercise so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Welcome along, I have to say I'm pretty excited to be honest because my, my wife, I'm, I'm getting used to saying my wife instead of my partner, uh, my wife Joe and I are about to head off on our honeymoon, we're going over to Europe for about six weeks, uh, I am going to be releasing shows, I've kind of pre-recorded all the shows so that you will still get the content while I'm away, so that's kind of cool, um, but I'm just really looking forward to it you know you get to this well it's a midway through the year and in New Zealand you're heading into winter and it's always nice to be leaving you know for a bit of a break leading into winter so I'm pretty excited about that and uh, also Joe and I we love our travel and we love Europe and we love food in Europe so we're gonna have a, a really cool time over there so it's pretty cool today's show I've got a, a great interview for you a guy called Jack Lessig who's basically a world-leading sports psychologist and um, man who's one of those people I love interviewing people. I love kind of getting and digging into people's minds. And the, and the people, some of the people I enjoy interviewing the most are those people who have spent their career in an area um, who come from the right place and have amazing insight. I, I think back to Anders Ericsson. I, I loved interviewing him. Um, such a, an amazing man who had achieved so much and added so much to the knowledge of humanity uh, and also just came from a place of you know, you just knew he was in it for the right reason. And Jack was definitely one of those people, the sense I got with him in sitting down doing an interview with him is, you know, his, his his body of work was really important. His body of work was adding lots of value and he got a lot of insight. And you'll see in this interview that he, we really only scratched the surface. We talked for about 50 minutes, but there's so much more. I've actually said to him after the interview, well, let's get you back on again at some time. And it'll probably be, you know, sometime next year, but it would be good to get him back on to kind of go deeper into maybe a couple of the areas. And he said, yeah, I'd love to talk about team sports and how do you create a team dynamic. So, um, yeah, I don't imagine this will be the only time we have Jack on the show. So it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about other things today because again, we talked for 50 minutes, but I just want to say big thanks to all the patrons of the show. If you want to become a patron of the Bevan James Isles show, just go to my website, bevanjamesisles.com. It's all very clear on the website and it's just a way that you can support me and what I'm doing. And some of the people who do that are Robbie Big Shot Allen. <clears throat> We've got Team Divine, Glenn and Gemma Mitchell. And they've got a young man as well, which is very cool. We've got Libby Allen Hilda. She's a bit of a rock star that I know as well. Uh, we've got Rebecca Bullseye Spear. Now, someone's the marvelous, but I've deleted their name. So, if you are the marvelous and you know that's the case, and I and I'm not saying your name, flick me an email because I feel really bad that I've deleted your name. We've got Bernadette Soul Caliber Parry and Matt Forrest Warhol Ackhurst. So, these people are people who support me in delivering the show every fortnight. And for those other people who are patrons, just again, I really appreciate your support. It makes a big difference. So thank you so much for the patrons. And again, if you want to be a patron, go to www.bevanjamesisles.com. I'm going to get straight into the show right now. Here is Jack Lessig. (laughs) 
Right, Tim, I'm very, very excited to have a, a man called Jess, Jack, sorry, Jack Lessick. And he, as he said to me just then, it's like more healthy and less sick. So Lessick is his last name. Uh, he's a bit of a legend, to be honest. He's got a a long career in academia around sports psychology and has had quite a bit of influence on that, that part of the world. And so instead of me talking about him, I thought I'd say hello, Jack, and maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about your history. Be glad to, Bevan. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be somewhat brief, but I, I like to tell the history because it also is a learning lesson. Mm. And uh, a long, long time ago, uh, I met with my first major failure. I'm going to start out with failure because a lot of people experience failure. Uh, I went off to college to become an engineer because I was very good in math and very good in science. And uh, the first year in school was horrible, absolutely horrible. I didn't like it. I wasn't motivated. I didn't do very well. At the end of the year, I came within a tenth of a point of being kicked out by the university. Okay. Uh, I went home for the summer. I came back the following year. And I was so determined to succeed, so determined. But within a month or two, it was the same thing. I didn't like it. I didn't like myself. Uh, none of those things. So one uh, autumn morning, I was walking to my class. You could see my breath in the air, and it was a beautiful day. The leaves are turning, and I was sick in my stomach. So instead of going to my class, I went to the counseling center, and I said, I need help. And I met with a young man who was my counselor for a couple of weeks, and then one day he looked at me and he said, why are you in engineering? You're a people person. And with his guidance, the following semester, I took sociology, anthropology, psychology, and I got a 4.0, which is all A's top, okay, without even trying, because I fell in love with all of them. I fell a little more in love with psychology. Uh, so to make the long story short, I went off to grad school, became a psychologist, got my doctorate, loved it. I fell in love, and I'm still in love with it. I've had several careers. I started out very traditionally doing clinical counseling, working with people who had mild mental disorders, uh, depression, bipolar, those kinds of things uh, in an institution. Eventually, I left the institution, went into private practice. Around the time when I went into private practice, I also started running recreationally just to be more healthy. I wanted to lose a little weight. Uh, I gave up smoking. I was a cigarette smoker for many, many years. And once I got into running, uh, I loved it so much that within two years I was doing marathons, okay? Mm -hmm. I ended up doing 14 of them wow. over about a 10-year period, okay? But it was my own conversion to, to exercise and sport that led me to change my life very dramatically. Uh, because that gave me the courage to leave the institution, go into private practice. It gave me courage to end a relationship that was not a good relationship and to reorient my career. So as I began the uh, the clinical practice, I was also more and more interested because of myself in the mental part of being a serious athlete. Okay, not an elite athlete, but a serious athlete. I wasn't great, but to me, it was very important to set goals, to work hard, to achieve those goals. So over the years in my practice, it became more and more working with athletes and other performers like musicians and dancers, so that during the last five years, that's all I do. I only do sport and performance psychology, and I love what I do. Yeah, you know, it seems like you've been in, in the game for a long time. What, what are you saying? The last five years is kind of full time, but how long were you into yeah. sports psychology as an overall? 
Overall, thirty years. So, so when you because yeah. I kind of kind of mentioned it was a big big area thirty yeah. years ago. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. Say it again, please. I can't, I can't imagine it was a big area thirty years ago. It wasn't. It was very very small. Uh, and thirty years ago. Uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee had their very first meeting on sports psychology. They didn't have it in their programs at all. So I had to do a number of things in order to make this conversion. I did a lot of free public speaking, you know, to coaches, to school directors, to anybody who would listen to me, explaining what is sports psychology and what we do. And most of them didn't have a clue. And those who did thought we only work with elite athletes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we don't. We work with any serious athlete. So it can be a 10-year-old figure skater, you know, or a 75-year-old golfer, everybody in between. So I had to beat the drum and go out there and do a lot of publicity work. And slowly over the years, you know, a few years later, I'm doing 20% athletes, 50%, 80%. And then finally, about five years ago, I said, that's it. That's all I'm going to do. Today, at least in the States, uh, it's very different because most athletes and coaches know about sports psychology, whether they use them or not, they know about them, usually favorably, you know, and uh, that makes it much easier for those of us who are developing and maintaining practices, you know, to get work to do. The one downside is that so many people think that sports psychology is only for troubled athletes, okay? Not for every athlete. And I view it differently. I view it, it's like strength and conditioning. Every serious athlete gets a workup on strength and conditioning. They know what their weaknesses are. They know what their strengths are. And then they can be given exercises to improve their weaknesses. And I see the same thing with the mental skills, not just for someone who's in trouble, but a good profile, finding out what are your your, your, your strong mental skills for your sport, and where is there room for development? How would you define uh, sports psychology? Well, I guess I would have to say, you know, there are a couple of definitions. One is a little more academic, and that is the study of how sports affects people, and also what kind of people are successful in sport, kind of a two-way street. That's a little more academic research side. Uh, my side is applied sports psychology, and that is working with real-life people uh, who are predominantly athletes, although, as I said, we also work with musicians and other you know, performers, and just helping them uh, to be the best they can be uh, from the mental point of view, because most of them are doing what they need to do in terms of learning technique for their sport and strength and conditioning. Uh, but very often they don't address the mental part systematically. You know, for example, uh, a coach may say to a player, you know, relax. Now, usually they don't say it so nicely. They'll say, relax, God damn it, relax. <laughs> The goal is worthwhile. The method may not be successful <laughs> because they don't know how to teach relaxation, mm. but that's what I do. Uh, I can teach someone how to relax in pressure situations. I can teach them how to maintain focus, how to set goals, and how to work toward your goals on a daily basis as needed. When you first stepped into this field, as you said, it was very much kind of unknown and, and um, maybe not resistance, but almost just people not knowing about it before, you know. Yeah. And so it was kind of selling, you know, the value of it mm -hmm. to your world. Uh, yeah. How much has shifted in your evolution with the understanding over this thirty years? Like when you first started out, what what were you, what were the kind of the things you were teaching, and how how much has that shifted in the time you've been doing it? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say. 
the basic stuff that we do um, is pretty much the same. The way we do it has changed uh, because our knowledge base has increased through research. We also have more tools at our disposal. Uh, for example, right from the beginning to this very day, anxiety has probably been the number one reason why people come to me. My very first uh, client was a 17-year-old figure skater who was throwing up before competition. He was so nervous, wow. okay? Now, today, he's he's approaching 50, and he's sending referrals to me because I've been around for a long time. I'm an old dog. Uh, but I was helping him to learn how to relax. Uh, I still do that with young people. However, today, I do biofeedback. In addition to um, teaching breathing techniques and things like that, uh, I have a computer, and I can hook the person up with fingertip sensors that measures their heart rate, a whole bunch of other things. As they practice the breathing, they're getting direct feedback. The computer looks at their heart rates and can tell them, indeed, you are relaxed or you're not doing it quite right. Mm -hmm. So you aren't relaxed. It takes the guesswork out of it. So our technology has improved significantly you know, during these interim years. Yeah, so, so your ability to give better feedback because you're getting better tools to help you understand where they are. Yeah. Okay, well, you, you talk yes. a lot about um, the nine mental skills. Maybe you can just give us a little a, kind of a breakdown of each and, and you know. Give I some would. Words. Yeah. I would, sure. Let me start out with why it came about. This, this is a, a frame of reference uh, that I put together about 15 years ago. And the reason why I did it was that coaches and athletes were talking more and more about mental toughness. Mm. Okay. Now, the one side of that is okay because it was acknowledging that there's a mental component to sport. However, the choice of words I don't think was a good one. Toughness is really more like a physical term, trying to translate it into a mental term. But it isn't just toughness. It's a lot more subtle mm -hmm. and differentiated. Uh, the other thing about mental toughness is the question, well, what is it? And how do I get it? Do I just grit my teeth and make a fist? So about 15 years ago, I spent about two years on and off translating mental toughness into what turned out to be nine very specific mental skills. Okay. And these can be defined, they can be measured, and they can be taught. Now, the content of the nine skills, which I'm going to talk about in a few moments, is not something I invented. This is kind of the state of the way people are. It's sort of like the tools and the concepts that most psycho sports psychologists would use. But what I did is I put them together in, a, in an organized way that I think is very understandable. That was my goal. And I've been using it in my practice for 15 years. And I've also shared with, with colleagues worldwide who are also making use of it. Okay, so let me talk about about the nine skills now. Okay, and <clears throat> we're going to talk about three time periods that that require different mental skills. So we're going to talk about first of all performance mental skills, and that's while the person's behavior is being measured. So let's say in tennis, for example, the athlete is in performance from the moment the serve is executed until the point is over and it's awarded. So then when, the when it's actionable. 
That's right. Yeah. When is when your behavior counts, when you can do something well or make a mistake. Uh, in track, for example, it's from the start of the sound gun until you cross the finish line or whatever. Some sports like track, once you start performance, you're in it until it's over. Mm. But tennis is a stop and start sport. So you get little pockets of relaxation or whatever you want to do in between. Okay? Wait, 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 so we're going to talk. Just, just while you talk about that. Yeah. Um, what about the duration of the sport? Like, you know, I, I did Ironman triathlon for years and you did marathons, oh my gosh, you know. Yeah. So, you know, like yeah. a tennis and, and a track, you know, the duration of yeah. time where you're in that, that kind of sure. your performance, you are, it's very short. Whereas like a triathlon, you can be out there for 15 hours. Absolutely. Compared to a 10 meter, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 10, 10 seconds. Yeah. I trained for four years to run for 10 seconds, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. But that is a variable, you know. And the content may vary a lot as I'm working with the athlete because the challenges are very different from a sprinter versus a marathon or triathlete and all that. But still we talk about let's let's define first when the athlete's behavior counts, you know, whether it's points or whether it's a clock or something like that. Okay, that's when they're in performance. Then and and if you're if people out there can imagine uh, a pyramid And now I'm talking about the top of the pyramid. The top of the pyramid is while you're in performance. And I'll go back in a minute and fill in the gaps, okay? The second level, the mid-level on this this pyramid is what I call preparatory mental skills. You're not yet in performance, but you're preparing your mind for performance. And then the very base of this pyramid are what I call basic mental skills that are necessary day in and day out to continue improving as an athlete. Okay. And this is the same whether you're a 10-year-old figure skater or a 75-year-old golfer, whether as long as you are you know, serious about your sport, that's all, you know. Um, so, so that's kind of like the daily not, habits that you're going to have, which obviously yeah. the pyramids, kind of like that's your foundation, and then yeah. your preparation is kind of just before the moment, and then, then extra yes. performance, okay. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll start out now. You know, and maybe let's let's just is tennis a good example? Is yeah, that a good yeah, sport? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to the French Open final in a couple of weeks, so there you go. Okay, That's a very yeah. good example. Okay, yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. So we have three mental skills that are very important while the tennis player is playing the game. Okay, concentration, and again, this is true of all sports, but the way in which concentration is required is very different in tennis than, for example, golf. Golfers need to concentrate, tennis players, basketball players, and so on. But the intensity and the duration of concentration will vary according to sport. But all athletes, when they do well, what do they say to the media? I was really focused. Mm. Okay, that's what we're talking about. So let's talk about what concentration is. First of all, it's knowing what you should be paying attention to. Okay, now you usually learn that early in the sport, but not always. Now, once you know what you should be paying attention to, then you need to have the skill to block out distractions, first of all, from the outside world. If it's tennis, you know, the crowd, the referees, the family, all that kind of stuff, the noise, the media, to be able to not pay attention to that, to block out distraction. More challenging are what I call internal distractions. Okay, and those are thoughts about the last time I played or the score or anything that's not going to help you to perform well at this moment. And the third component of concentration is being able to change concentration very quickly 
when the situation changes, okay? Tennis unfolds very, very quickly, so does basketball, and one needs to change their their concentration very, very quickly, okay, or else they're left behind. If their mind is lingering, oh, I just made a mistake, they're going to make another one. Now, golf, by contrast, um, doesn't unfold very quickly, you know, so you don't have to change your focus, your concentration, you know, very quickly. So those are the components of concentration. Can, can I ask when I, how we – please. Oh, sorry, no, just um, you said, you know, so know the, know the different skill and then measure and yeah. change. What would be measuring yeah. change for concentration? Um, when you say measuring, I'm not sure what you're meaning, Bev. Oh, so, me. so when you're working with a client, you said, um, you know, we, we have the skills and we need to measure where they are with that skill and then we yeah. need to help them change or improve that skill. Yes. Um, so okay. what would be the process you'd go through to help someone measure their ability to have concentration? Okay, great. Uh, I do have a questionnaire that I give them, a very structured questionnaire uh, that measures all these these nine mental skills. It's a lengthy questionnaire. It has about 110 items on it. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And so they are answering questions for me about whether their mind drifts away, um, whether they can p- perform in the here and now, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the measurement to zero in on where they need to you know, to work, to improve their concentration. Then if I work with them, uh, I will use different tools. I will, first of all, ask them for an example in recent times when they lost their concentration, okay? And now maybe they're telling me they lost concentration after they missed two simple points in a row. They should have won them, they lost them, and now they're thinking about what's wrong with me today rather than playing this point. Mm. So when I collect anecdotes from them, of real life experiences, then we can have a conversation about what should you have done? Now that you're looking back at it, what should you have done when that happened? And then depending on the person and what we're working on, I may take them through a visualization. You know, they may close their eyes, uh, they relax a little bit with some deep breaths, and they said, now let's go back in time to last weekend when, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I guide them through doing it properly. Uh, sometimes if it's a repetitive challenge, I may record it on a, on a disc so that they can uh, actually practice it on their own, you know, relive it, relive it, relive it correctly. Uh, very often athletes do the opposite. They relive the mistake over and over again, mm. and that's bad because that's stamping the mistake into the brain rather than doing it correctly. Mm. Yeah, great, great. Okay, so um, first one was maintaining concentration. Uh, you see the three, yes. so the second. Okay. The next one is managing emotions, okay? And sport, by nature, is very emotional. And that's part of the appeal, both as an athlete, also as a spectator. Sport can bring out joy and ecstasy and camaraderie. It can also bring out disappointment, depression, and anger. All those emotions, okay? And we want to make sure for the given athlete that they have learned how to manage the emotions, okay? In a way, hopefully, that helps them and gives them energy, or at least at the very least doesn't get in the way, okay? Uh, So we will, again, on my lengthy intake questionnaire, there were quite a few questions about, you know, uh, do you get angry? How do you manage your anger? Uh, Even positive emotions uh, can also be disruptive to performance, you know, and some of the tennis players will tell me that they're closing out the very last uh, end of a match, they're winning, and now they're getting so excited about winning that they're not paying attention, and Mm. they lose the last couple of points, okay? Uh, So anyhow, we do the assessment on emotions, 
And then if necessary, I do emotional training with them, okay? Uh, the third component of the, the skills while you're actually performing is managing nervousness or anxiety, okay? And this is probably one of the big ones. Uh, probably 80% or more of all the athletes who want me to help them, you know, call me because they're choking under pressure. Okay. And they'll say something like, I don't understand. All week I was doing really, really great, playing good golf or whatever it might be. Came the big tournament on the weekend, and I just couldn't make my shots, you know, because I, then I got more nervous and, and whatever. Um, some degree of nervousness is very normal and can be helpful to an athlete, particularly before the event begins, okay? Uh, most athletes, you know, um, you know, before the event is like, oh, man, I'm tense, I'm nervous, but let's get started. I'm ready to go. Come on, let's get started. I have to wait a half hour. Oh, nuts, whatever. So they're feeling energy from their from their anxiety, but they're also feeling excitement, and it's rather positive because they're thinking, you know, I'm pretty well prepared. I could have a good day. Let me go do it. So that's when nervousness is a good thing. So okay. it's kind of, it's, it's, it's almost like the excitement and, and it's kind yeah. of an, 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 a, a stimulant in some ways. Exactly. Okay. And yes, it gets some adrenaline going, yeah. which pumps them up. And they're thinking that they're probably going to have success. Okay. Now, when nervousness becomes too strong, several things happen. One, it's hard to concentrate on the task at hand because you're thinking more about your body. Oh, my stomach feels like I'm going to throw up. My muscles are tense. You know, my mind is racing. My, my heart is beating fast. Oh, this feels horrible. They're not thinking about the job. They're thinking about the discomfort of anxiety. Okay. The other thing that happens with too much anxiety is instead of anticipating something good, now they begin to think, I just don't want to screw up. I don't want to make mistakes, embarrass myself, cost my team points and all that. And those very thoughts make them more nervous. Mm. So it becomes, it becomes a vicious cycle. Yeah. The third thing that happens with nervousness is that the body tends to tense up. Okay. When we worry, we all of our muscles become tense, and then these muscles are not fluid, and the biomechanics are very different than doing the exact same thing in practice when you are relaxed. Okay, like shooting free throws in practice, you're nice and relaxed, but shoot one in a game under a lot of pressure, you may be tense, and that's that sort of thing. Mm. So those those are the big three you know, uh, while the athlete is performing. And as I say, the athletes that I work with, they don't come out of thin air because you set the stage with level two, which is what I call the preparatory mental skills. Okay. Mm. And there are two skills at that level. Uh, one is mental imagery and the other is self-talk in everyday language. This is thinking. We think in terms of pictures. We think in terms of, of, of words, usually blended together, okay? So, for example, if, uh, if I'm going home tonight and I need petrol or gas, you call it petrol? Yeah, petrol, okay. yeah. <laughs> We're bilingual here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we know uh, what you're talking about. <laughs> that's right. So, anyhow, uh, if I'm thinking that I have to fill my tank with fuel on the way home, I picture the petrol station and my words are reminding me and I have a very clear image in my head and that makes it easy for me to carry that out. Now, in a lot of life situations, this is not important. A lot of life situations, you're not goal oriented. So whatever pops into your head is okay. However, when you're about to step into a performance situation, whether it's stepping onto the tennis court, whether it's giving a lecture, 
going on a job interview, uh, taking an examination, all those are performance situations. Then it becomes very important to set the stage with proper visualization and proper self-talk. Okay. Now this will of course be tailored to the individual and the situation that I'm preparing them for. But the bottom line is I want to look at what they're doing now and to see whether I need to make an adjustment. And if they are having anxiety problems, they're probably not doing too well on this. They're probably saying things to themselves like, oh, I'm not feeling well. I'm not well prepared. Uh, I don't want to make mistakes. And they're picturing themselves making mistakes and that sort of thing. Mm. Okay. It's, it's kind of the uh, whole thing of don't think of an orange, isn't it? It's, you know, exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah, okay. Precisely. Yeah. You know, so I try to turn that around with them. And then very often, unless I'm very explicit, they'll say, oh, okay, I get it. So I'm really negative. So now I'm going to turn it around, Dr. Jack. Okay, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say to myself, I'm going to win today. I'm a winner. Man, I'm going to win. Well, that's better, but I still don't think it's good. Because my feeling is if you say those things to yourself, you know, then and they don't come true. You know, three tennis tournaments in a row, you're saying to yourself, I'm going to win. I'm really great and all that sort of thing. Then your words become very shallow and you don't believe yourself. Mm, so you have no so, self-credibility in a way. That's exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the way I approach it is um, I don't want you to make a prediction one way or the other. Obviously, it's a bad prediction to say I'm going to play poorly. But it's not wonderful either to say I'm going to play well because we really don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. Okay, and then they kind of laugh, but I say, that's why we're playing the game. If we knew who was going to win, we would just hand out the awards. You could go home without sweating, right? Mm-hmm. So I say, that's the, that's the excitement of sport is its unpredictability for you and for everybody else who is playing today. Okay, mm-hmm. so instead of making predictions, let's talk of what you, what you believe to be true that's going to help you prepare yourself and feel good. So if you can say positive affirmations, you know, I'm a good competitor. I love competing. Most of the time I do pretty well. Uh, if I relax and focus, I will play well today. Now, playing well is obtainable. Winning, no, because mm-hmm. winning is not your control because you don't get to choose your opponent or your opponents and you have no control over how well prepared, how good they are when they come on. So even though coaches and the culture and certainly the media – is always talking about winning, 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 winning. And I'm working one-on-one with an athlete. I say, winning, trying to win is very important. That motivates you. It makes you dig deep. It makes you want to be better. So I'm not putting that down. But don't evaluate yourself so much on win-loss records. And then I'll say, for example, well, look, you probably know you have won events. And it didn't feel that great because your opponents were terrible. You have probably lost events where you played your absolute best and you walked off that court or off that field and you say, damn, we lost, but boy, did we play well. We Mm. really played well. Mm. So that's what you can control. Focus on what you can control. Let go of those things that you can't control. Mm. Okay. So that's kind of the middle band. That's preparing yourself. Now, obviously, I'm sorry, Bevan, go ahead. Well, no, and, and ultimately what you're saying there is that to shift that away from from negative but it's not about yeah it's about 
getting yourself to a place where you've processed thinking around yes. how I can perform today in this in this, in this in this in this kind of moment, not necessarily around the result I'm going to get. Yes, Perfect. exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. exactly. Now, getting back to the preparatory skills, the most important time to use them, of course, is just before you go into action. You know, either before the game starts or even when there's an interruption in the action. You know, for tennis players, you you, you get back into preparatory mental skills uh, between playing and the next serve and that mm. sort of thing. However, anytime you're thinking about playing, you're preparing yourself in a good way or not so good way. So it could be the night before. It could be a week before. For example, a team talking about going to uh, a higher level of competition and the team is talking in the locker room and they say, well, next week we play so-and-so, you know, and some of the guys maybe say, we're going to get killed. They're so much better than us. Look how well they did last year. Well, obviously that's not very good, <laughs> you know, uh, but they are preparing them. They're, they're rehearsing in their mind the wrong thing rather than, man, what a challenge. We're going to step up and show those guys. We're going to practice hard this week. We're going to get out there. I don't know if we're going to win, but we're sure going to give them one hell of a good fight. Mm. So that's how we kind of switch, yep. you know, uh, the individual's preparatory thing. And, and within that, what you're saying yeah. is to, to kind of see the whole environment, how that can influence it. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And I did use a team example, and that's a whole other topic, and that yeah. is to get team on the same wavelengths, you know, but if we want to, we can go there a little bit later, but I'm going to talk about now the basic skills at the base of this, of this pyramid that I was talking about. And there are four, uh, at the very bottom, we have attitude and attitude is not simply good or bad attitude, but attitude conveys how sport fits into the person's life, whether they're an amateur or a professional. And for the most part, you know, I talk about, particularly with, with recreational and amateurs, you know, it's a little different with the pro, but reminding them constantly, particularly with young athletes that, you know, playing your sport is a choice. You don't have to play tennis. You don't have to play football, you know, but you choose to. And remind yourself that of every single day. It's not a job. It's something you choose to do. And you do it because predominantly it makes life better than if you didn't. Okay. Not every day, not every week, but Overall, yes, okay? Good attitude is seeing yourself as a developing person and as a developing athlete. And it doesn't matter what age you are, you're still developing, okay? And what does that mean? It means that developing means that there are setbacks, there are bad days, there's failure, but you understand that that's part of the process and you accept that for the gains that are going to come, you know, as you stay with that process. Okay. Good attitude is trying to win, but winning itself, as I said before, may not be under your control. So don't get too carried away with it. Sometimes winning's not the most important thing. Enjoying your sport and acquiring new skills and becoming better may be more important than whether you won or not. Mm. Okay. Mm. Good attitude is feelings of self-worth as a human being should not be based so much on athletic performance. There are more core values, honesty, integrity, compassion, you know, hard work. These may be more important than, you know, your win-loss record. Now, that must be and a really interesting area for you because I yeah. imagine when you're dealing with very elite athletes who are yes. publicly facing, you know, and, and their, yes. their whole life is scrutinized, um, yes. their will tells them that's the opposite. 
You're quite right. You're quite right. And I would have to give them a little bit of allowance. I would have to say that it's different than the amateur, mm. you know, uh, because they do base some of their self-worth on their sport. And I have to say, I do that myself. You mm. know, I'm a sports psychologist and part of my self-worth has to do with, am I doing a good job? Yeah. Okay. Am I doing yeah. a good job? In this? So we can't remove that entirely. However, those professional athletes, while that's a piece of them, those who also, you know, have some humility, you know, they, they know that they were given a special gift. They didn't necessarily earn it, although they're, they're, they're working hard to maintain it, but they also, you know, see the connection to, to family, uh, to giving back to the community. They do see the wider picture and how they fit in separate from just being a great athlete. Well, you know, and that's a really um, important area, isn't it? Because often you you, yeah. know, you you look at the post career of many athletes, and there's kind of yes. there's, there's kind of oh. two paths, isn't there? There's a person who just that's goes right. on to be a successful person, and then there's the person whose life kind of crumbles really once sport finishes. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. If that's the only thing they have, yeah. and they based all of their self esteem on their athletic career, and it's done, mm. they have a big problem. Yeah, versus yeah. the athlete who may be on the same team performing just as well, but he's very committed to his wife, very committed to his kids. You know, uh, off-season, he drives his kids to school. Mm. Um, he does some coaching. He does all these kinds of things. So when his career, or I should say he or she, when the career comes to an end, uh, yeah, it's stressful, but they don't crumble. Mm. They don't lose their identity because their identity is multifaceted, among yeah. other things as well. Yeah. Right. So anyhow, that's that's the attitude section that we talk about. Uh, the next section, these are under basic skills, is motivation. And that is, why are you doing this? You know, I mean, that's the question that I ask all the athletes that I that I work with. Now, I don't get, I, I help them with the answer because I give them a list of 15 of the reasons most commonly given why people do a sport. So they're not at a loss. Why do you why do you play tennis? You know, and there are things like because I like the social aspects. I like being on a school team. I like my teammates and all that. For someone else, I mean, the answer might might be uh, I want recognition. I want people to know that I do something very special. For another, it may be monetary. You know, I hope to play professional or in the U.S. I hope to go to college and, you know, get a scholarship so my parents don't have to pay a lot of money. Uh, it might be for physical fitness, etc. So when I'm working with someone, I have this list of 15 and I basically say, you know, check mark the five that are most important to you and put them in order. What's the most important, second most important? And then I ask them after that is to what extent is this happening? So if you are playing your sport for fun, which many do, which is good, you know, are you having fun? Mm. You know, uh, if you're playing for recognition from other people, are you getting that recognition? So I can kind of get a handle on, you know, are they getting back what they expected from the sport? Are they happy campers, you know, or is there some problem? So if they tell me, for example, playing for fun is really important, you know, they're 12, 13 years old and they're not having fun, then I have a conversation about what has to change in order for you to have fun. Why are you not having fun? It might be because my dad criticizes me so much, or it may be because the coach doesn't give me playing time. How can I enjoy my sport if I don't get to play? So we do some problem solving on that. Do, do you find with this area here, uh, you know, because ultimately if I can tap into the right motivation, yeah. I'm going to yeah. work harder. But but if, if 
you know, like a lot of times people in trying to seek improvement will move towards actions that aren't about, <laughs> aren't enjoyable or aren't even really working for their motivations, but it's yes. meant to be performance enhancing and maybe pulls yeah. them away from sport. Is that something you experience? Uh, I'm not sure I'm understanding the question, Bevan. Could you say that again, please? So like, for example, you know, like in trying to f- find performance, you know, everyone's okay. kind of desperate to find the answer, aren't they? You know, <laughs> and, and, okay. and, you know, sure. and so they'll try methods of motivation that maybe doesn't suit them ah. just because okay. someone else has said that helps somebody else perform. Do you find that happens okay. a lot? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think athletes are so- somewhat like overweight people. Um, they're a little bit gullible for whatever comes down the the latest new diet, the latest workout and all that kind of Mm. stuff, you know, and let's face it, there are a lot of hucksters in the marketplace, you know, who are taking advantage, you know, of, of that, Mm. you know, Uh, I'm pretty much a basic guy and that is, you know, find something that is reputable, that's science backed up and stay with it. Don't keep, you know, shopping around and trying a whole bunch of different things because mm, mm. there is good stuff out there. Well, and, and I imagine when people move down that path, it might move them away from their real levels of motivation, the, the real triggers. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm. Right. Which gets us to the next topic, which, which is goals and commitment, you know, and in working with, with athletes and other performers, you know, I, I talk about, you know, uh, what are your long range goals? Let's talk about a year from now or two or three years from now, depending on your age, what would you like to be experiencing in your sport? How far do you want to go? Okay. Uh, and then we talk about, you know, what are the steps for getting there, you know, for say the coming year and what are the mile markers that if you want to be able to run a marathon in, you know, less than three hours, two years from now, you know, in one year, what should your time be? And that sort of thing. And then we keep on coming down It all has to translate into a daily training program, whether you put it together by yourself, as I did, because I was an individual marathoner, not part of a school or a team, or if you have a coach or an organization that's working with you, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you ought to know exactly what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. That's going to move you towards those goals. And I like record keeping that you keep a logbook or a diary and you have your commitments and you check them off and that sort of thing. Mm. Even if they're very small steps, they're moving in the right direction. And for inspirational, I talk about can you imagine the tennis player that you're wanting to be in in a year or two years from now? Imagine that person and how would that person be different from who you are right now? And that helps us to define some goals. And, and how do you make sure they are realistic? Because you kind of get two levels, don't you? The person who doesn't really challenge himself enough, and then the person yeah. who is re- really unrealistic and, and actually there's no hope of them getting to that level. Like, how do you make yeah. sure they get that right? Oh, good question. You know, because uh, I see that sometimes, you know, not too often, but I do see it. And I never want to step on someone's mm. dream, okay? Yeah. Never want to step on their dream. But I will sometimes, depending on their age, you know, for example, when I'm, I don't work often with under 13. Occasionally I will with, with figure skaters and, and gymnasts because, you know, around eight or nine, they are very serious competitors, too yeah. much so. And if they're nervous, no one else is going to work with them. So sometimes I do. And I can guarantee every figure skater age eight or nine is going to skate in the Olympics for the United States. That is that is their goal. At that age, I don't discourage it. It's I just very pass over it and say, well, what do you have to do this week in order to work toward those goals? OK, mm-hmm. now, if they're if they're if they're 14 or 15 and they're they're not an elite figure skater and they're talking about going to the Olympics now 
in my heart of heart, I know this is an impossible dream. It's not going to happen. Okay. So I don't step on the dream, but I talk about what's, what's the backup plan. You know, you and I both know that somewhere between two and four American women go to the Olympics every four years between two and four, Yeah. you know, that's the odds are not real good, you know? So if it doesn't happen, then what's the plan? You know, and usually once I put it on the table, they kind of know that, you know, yeah. uh, their, their, their coaches are, are telling a little bit more about reality, but nobody wants to say to them, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. You're not going to do it, you know? Mm. And then sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you are wrong. Maybe you are working with one of those two to four, you know, who are going to make the team. Yeah. But by that age, you can make the prediction at, at six or seven. You can't make the prediction by 13 or 14. You can tell because mm-hmm. there's certain milestones they should have crossed if they're going to make an Olympic team. Then the, the last point uh, under the basic mental skills, you know, are, are people skills. And in order to be a successful athlete, you really do need to have skills, two different skill sets. One for dealing with people who are on your side, you know, usually your family, your friends, people you train with, your coaches. And you need to have the social skills to get along okay with them without bottling up your feelings if you have a grievance and without being overly hostile with your grievance, but learning how to respectfully bring up any issue that's on your mind and work it out and move on. Mm-hmm. And then the second uh, skill set is dealing with people who don't want you to exceed, to succeed and those are your opponents. And depending on the sport, Pardon me. In some sports, um, there's a lot of trash talk. There's Mm. a lot of trying to get into your head, uh, trying to make you angry, make you nervous, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, Basketball is pretty famous for that, insulting your mother while you're playing basketball. (laughs) Tennis, cheating on line calls and those kinds of things. In our part of the world, cricket. Cricket. um, Cricket. Oh, sure. Yeah. The Australian cricket team are are one of the best teams of all time, but they're also known as being amazing sledges and just being quite brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, cricket is very rare in the States. You know, there are a few clubs. It doesn't get any media coverage, but I was in uh, Dubai in January for a week, and that's there was a channel. It was just cricket morning, yeah. noon, and night. Yeah, and I was watching it, I was getting into it. Yeah, it's, like, it's a cool game. Oh, there's really a lot is. of there's a lot of that kind of the your your opponent is, is yeah. not just physically; they mentally are just drilling. Absolutely. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's pretty cool. But then the second skill set with dealing with people who don't want you to succeed is where you're not do they're not doing anything to bother you. But you're doing it to yourself, self-intimidation. And that's when you're saying to yourself, oh, my God, I can't believe we're playing against that team. They're going to kill us, you know, mm-hmm. or that particular player is awesome. There's no way we can be successful against him or her, you know, and those are self-defeating thoughts. They, they suck out your power, you know, rather than, as I said, like before, when you start thinking that way, think of, wow, this is a challenge. You know, we're going to dig deep. We're going to fight hard. We are the un- underdogs win. You know, sometimes they win. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, they've played hard, you can feel good about it. So it's a matter of shifting your thinking from that defeatist attitude to at least feeling challenged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so I suppose so there's a lot to, well, I could talk to you for hours. Uh, to be honest, you're pretty great, Jake. But um, <laughs> I suppose the one question I have is, you know, like for the everyday person who's maybe just doing sport, you know, not of the high level, how would you approach sure. them, you know, who maybe can't afford to or, or you know, is another level where they're going to go see a sports yeah. psychologist? How would you suggest they work through, the, you know, the pyramid and the skills? Yeah, I guess I would I would say, 
you know, you, first of all, you have to define your level of seriousness, mm. you know, and whatever the level is, it's okay. You know, and if you're engaging in a sport, it can be just simply, we know that any movement is better than sitting still. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you don't have to run marathons. You don't have to run 10 Ks. And if you do those, you don't have to do them for a particular time. Okay. But my goal would be to help you enjoy what you're doing. You don't necessarily have to do analysis of all the nine mental skills and get into all of that unless you're getting pretty darn serious, but to have fun, to enjoy yourself and to get the benefit that you're going after. And if the benefit is, is his health and, and fitness, that's wonderful. And you don't have to run marathons to, to do that. But I would, I would hope that you'd be able to think positively that if you're, if you're a recreational athlete, you're doing it mostly for fitness the night before you're going to run a 5k or, or a 10k, you know, just think of the good part of it, you know, instead of getting nervous that I'm doing something really great, you know, probably only a few people my age can even do it at all. So who cares about the time, mm. you know, and then afterwards enjoying the satisfaction that, gee, I did it. I did something that most people can't do or, or choose not to do. Okay. Mm. So, uh, those are the kinds of things is, is let's not make it more serious than it has to be. Mm. Uh, another thing that's is really important to kind of acknowledge here is that your nine mm -hmm. skills, um, mm -hmm. it, it's life skills really, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that because these are the same skills of, like I said earlier, anytime you're stepping into a performance situation, whether it's giving a lecture, going on a job interview, taking a professional exam, all these things, you know, pertain, you know, uh, if you wish, you know, your, your listeners, you know, can, can look at our website. There's a little more detail, you know, uh, and, they can they can probably apply some of this you know themselves just mm. by reading what we have out there on the website. Yeah, can I can I ask where do you struggle with in this? Where do I? Um, yeah. You mean in, in terms of my own personal endeavors? Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, say it's probably more past tense because I'm not doing anything competitive anymore. Okay, I ran the marathons. I was an adult runner for 30 plus years, and that's what got me, you know, interested in this. And I used to have tremendous anxiety the night before a marathon. Usually I was in a strange town. I was in a hotel room. I'm trying to sleep and I'm thinking I have to get up at six o'clock tomorrow, be, be at the starting line at seven and I'm going to run 26.2 miles. That is crazy. That is, that is, oh my God, how did I get myself into this mess? You know? So that was kind of where I started learning how to control my thoughts, my imagination, my breathing, you know, to be able to fall asleep and at least get that anxiety, you know, way down. Mm. And then also beginning to imagine myself running the race that I wanted to race, you know, to run, you know, realistically. Mm. Uh, these days I'm not doing anything, you know, extremely challenging. I probably use these when I do presentations like uh, the end of June, I do a two day workshop. This is the 18th year we're doing it. And this is for psychologists and mental health people who want to transition into sports psychology. Okay. And basically I teach for 13 hours over two days and people wow. come from all over the States. Uh, this year I have some people from overseas and I get anxious. There's no doubt about it. I do get anxious. Uh, however, there's nothing like good preparation. So I don't wait till the last minute. Mm -hmm. I have three weeks to go now. And so I'm working on my slides. I'm working on my handouts. Uh, I'll rehearse it in my head and that sort of thing. I still will feel anxiety until it starts, mm -hmm. you know, 
once everybody's in the room and everything is together and I begin introducing myself, my anxiety goes way down. Mm. But before that, I experienced some. But it's also mixed with excitement. I love doing this and you know, I've done it for 18 years, so I do it pretty well. Yeah. Do um yeah. for people who what kind of time period does it take for people to actually create? I know, I know it's how long is a piece of string this mm. question is, but you know if someone is coming to work with a, a sports psychologist in an, in an area that mm-hmm. like anxiety, what kind of time yeah. frame does it normally take? Well, again, a good question. Um, realizing that I can't make a good prediction it depends on the person, yeah. how severe, and also how serious and hard they, how hard they work with me. Mm. Generally, what I say to them is, you know, we're going to meet once a week, if that's okay with you, for about five times after our intake. And on the fifth visit, I expect you to walk into my office and, and with a big smile on your face and say, hey, this stuff's starting to work. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And then, then we begin to fine tune. And it's kind of like we talk about how much have we achieved? How much more is there to do? And, you know, do do we want to continue once a week or could we back off to every other week? Because I try to teach, do most of the teaching right up front and then they practice and we kind of refine it. Mm. Now, with the anxiety, for example, it's not just talking. It's, it's, it's taking them through, for example, I take them through a 15-minute exercise on how to relax your body. It's called progressive relaxation. You may have heard of it. Close your eyes, take a deep breath, and we make a fist with your right hand, squeeze it, release, and relax. It's about 15 minutes. I record it on the CD, and I ask them to play it every day for a week to work with it. So they're, they're practicing the skill. The week after that, then I make I take them through visualizing, relaxing the mind, imagining yourself on a beach with a, you know the warm sun and hearing the waves and all that. They practice that. So now they have 14 days in a row that they are practicing relaxation. Then I teach them breathing, which condenses it. That becomes a trigger and so forth. So it's not like psychotherapy where we're just talking, mm. you know, they're practical skills. Uh, but usually around five weeks, they do walk in with a smile. Yeah, okay. And they do tell me it's starting to work for some more than others, but they're all seeing, you know, some progress. Uh, uh, well, another question that just totally popped out of my head. Um, oh, no, let's say someone is trying to find a sports yeah. psychologist. What would you say would be the things that they should be looking for? Well, the first thing, boy, that's, again, uh, the, the first thing is, is to see what their qualifications are. Now, there is an international organization called the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, AASP, okay? Uh, We are the largest sports psychology organization in the world, uh, and we do have people from, I think, 42 countries, you know. Now, granted, about 80% are North American, Canadian, and U.S., but it is throughout the whole world. They have a wonderful website, appliedsportpsych.org, Okay, they have tons of information about sports psychology, and they also have a list of of sports psychologists who are certified by the organization. Mm. Okay, now if I were to anywhere in the world uh, find someone who says they do sports psychology, I would ask them, you know, are you a member of ASP? And if they said yes, that's very good. Mm. If I said, are you certified by ASP? And they said, no, I wouldn't feel too bad about that. Are you working on it? Would make me feel good. But if they roll their eyes and say, I never heard of it, uh, I would be a little bit questioning about them. Okay. Yep. 
that that is the group and you know they, we're growing i think 2000 members now or something like that we're still a small profession worldwide we're still very small compared yeah, to many yeah. other professions well, so, and yeah. also there's it's a small market as well isn't it you know like it's you know how many yes. people want to spend the money on a sports psychologist and it's it's pretty niche isn't it in the us you're correct although it's growing yeah and, you know, I know the U.S., you know, uh, the, the sports in the U.S. are very different from the rest of the world, you know, and our colleges are very, very big sport oriented. Mm-hmm. We have American football and basketball and there are very big scholarships, you know. Um, so high school age kids, parents, you know, they're working. I, I helped a swimmer last year who wasn't doing too well, end up his senior year having a phenomenal season. He got a four-year full scholarship to a university, which is worth about $200,000 U.S. So so my time from that family's point of view was very well invested. So we're Mm. seeing more of that in the States. You know, again, worldwide, I'm not so sure, you know, where that's the same incentive. What's the most rewarding part of your job? Oh, thank you. The most rewarding part of my job is, 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 Seeing people doing things they didn't think they could do. Oh, cool. Walk in here with a smile and say, Dr. Jack, guess what? Yeah. And, you know, and then also when they tell me, you know, you, I came to you because I'm wrestling, but, you know, I'm working on this in school. I got good grades because of some of the things yeah, that I'm yeah. applying. It's transferable skills, and then, yeah. Yeah, and then once in a while, I'm old enough, I'm out shopping, and a 35-year-old guy will come up to me and say, hey, Dr. Jack, you probably don't remember me. And I'll say, I remember the face, but that's all. <laughs> he said, I came to you when I was in high school, and you taught me some great things. I haven't wrestled since college, you know, but I'm still using that stuff. And I always say, what are you using? Tell me specifically. And I always say, the way you taught me that breathing technique that I can relax just before performance. I still use that today. Those are the things that make me feel really, really good, Bevan. Got to be honest, I feel we're only scratching the surface with you today, mate. So uh, thank you so much for your time. And maybe I'd love to get you again on in the future because I think we could probably go a lot deeper. Um, okay. You, you know, you're a very, very wise man with a lot of pretty amazing insight. Oh. So um, thank you so much. Um, people, if you want to oh. follow Jack, um, he's got his website at sportpsych.org, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Just anything else you want to share before we finish up here today? Just a real pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity, you know, and I hope that uh, there's a little bit of benefit to some of the people who are tuning in. Oh, I'm sure Thank you like so it. much. Awesome, mate. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. So there you go, there's the interview with Jack, and I'm pretty sure you, you know, like I said earlier before we actually got onto the interview, that this man has a lot of insight, and um, he really adds to the community around sports psychology, obviously it's an area, now I know not all you are high-level athletes, but as we talked about in the interview, this is an area, you know, we all are trying to gain improving areas of our lives and sure this can be focused on sport but ultimately it's it's kind of performance in life as a way to think about it. And just to quickly recap remember he's got the three levels which is um, performance skills preparatory skills and then basic skills and within that in performance you've got concentration managing emotions and managing anxiety then within level two which is your preparation skills that's mental imagery and self-talk and then level one which is your basic skills people skills goals and commitment skills motivational skills and attitude skills so his website is sportspsych.org and i'll put a link to that in the show notes for today's show um 
yeah, you can go check it out. And uh, yeah, really good stuff. I really enjoyed that interview with Jack. And as I said before the interview, I will definitely get Jack on again at some stage because... Um, yeah, as you could tell, he's a pretty great interview. Anyway, that's pretty much today's show. Just once again, if you want to become a patron of the show, just go to bevanjamesisles.com and you'll see on the front page, there's just a little Patreon link. Click on that, go through the process, and you can donate as much as you want for every show that I put out. So, yeah. Over the next few weeks, I am I'm on my honeymoon. Joe and I go on a honeymoon. So, uh, I actually leave in a week from now, but by the time the next episode comes out, we'll be on our honeymoon. So, that's kind of cool. But uh, we will I will be releasing shows. I've got another couple interviews coming up and a bit of a Bevan show as well so keep an eye out for those if you enjoy the show spread the word tell your people on Facebook Twitter whatever um, and yeah and if you if you've got on iTunes or any of your podcatchers if you can give it a review that just all helps so appreciate your time you guys have a great couple of weeks and I'll see you real soon <laughs>